This is a Bartificer production. Welcome to episode 120 of the Let's Talk Photography podcast. I'm your host Bart Bouchotts and this is the show for September 2023. somewhat unusual show this month kind of a potpourri episode because there were two things i was inspired to talk about but neither were quite long enough for an episode entirely onto themselves so i've just combined two topics into one show for you so i'm gonna start by just um trying to demystify some new buzzwords that have just wandered into the camera phone universe Periscopes in tetraprisms, thanks to Apple releasing their latest you know, cameras that happen to be phones or phones that happen to be cameras, kind of hard to tell these days. Um, the iPhone 15 Pro Max in particular has some interesting special features. And then um, I finally received my copy of a book I pre-ordered long time ago way back after recording episode 102 with ward rosen and we ward came on to evangelize the german photographer evelyn hoffer and one of the places she worked was dublin and when we spoke well over a year ago nearly two years ago uh, there was a new book on the way um of her work in dublin in 1967 and so I immediately pre-ordered it and it finally arrived about two or three weeks ago so I wanted to actually share a a sort of a quick review of the book um, because I'm really taken by it and maybe others will end up uh, buying it too okay so periscopes and tetraprisms the thing that makes camera phones such great cameras also makes them really difficult to engineer Right, we have the old cliche, the best camera is the one you have with you. Well, we want a camera that's small and lightweight enough to always have with us, but we also want to be able to shoot high resolution, sharp images in low light with a nice natural bokeh and a broad choice of zoom ranges. You know, wide angle, telephoto, we want it all. So all of those things are easy to do in big heavy cameras. They're all really hard to do in small and light cameras. Which is, of course, what we insist our phones be, because they're phones first and cameras second for most people, most of the time. So it's kind of impressive what engineers in places like Google, Apple, Samsung have managed to do in, you know, say the last decade. You know, there was a time when the phone, the cameras and phones were a joke. And now some of the best cameras out there happen to be in phones. It's it's absolutely amazing. So, you know, we have managed to use really good sensor technology. I think one of the funniest ones was back rear illuminated sensors and all these kind of things. Amazing high quality Zeiss lenses in in our phones. You know, cleverly combining multiple cameras into the backs of those phones, using computational photography to pull information from all over the place and assemble a sensible image and then taking the whole kit and caboodle and running it through a bunch of machine learning to top it all off. I mean, wow. And for the most part, we've we've ended up with high resolution, 
sharp images, nice, mostly nice bokeh, um, a little lacking there too, perhaps. And, you know, on the whole, the, the photographs you get are amazing. But I think one of the remaining pain points is we haven't until now had camera phones that work well, or certainly not many camera phones that work well with high-end zooms. So basically, effective focal length, or 35mm equivalent focal lengths above 75mm. That's basically the 3X lens on an iPhone 14 Pro. That That's kind of as far as, as we've really gotten there. And the reason that's where things have stagnated for a while is because in order to make something zoom in, you need to use a longer focal length, right? The word longer is right in there. The light path between the front of the lens and the sensor on a long focal length lens must be long. That's what the focal length is, is the length between where the light starts its journey through the lens and where it comes to a focus, i.e. where the sensor has to be, otherwise you get a blurry image. So unless you get very creative, longer focal lenses mean thicker cameras, sorry, thicker phones, because there has to be ever more of a gap between the front of the lens and the sensor. And that's why we got a camera bump. The camera bump came about because we wanted to have these higher focal, these, these higher zooms in our camera phones, and we tolerated camera bumps. But there's only so far you can go with the camera bump. And I think we're pretty much there, right? The, the 3x zoom we get on last year's iPhones, they have as big a camera bump as humans can tolerate, really. Now, what really matters isn't the physical distance between the front of the lens and the sensor. What matters is the distance the light travels between the two. It's the light path that matters, not the crow flies distance. So if you can fold the light path, then you can, for want of a better term, cheat and get your long focal length into a shorter physical distance. And this idea of a bent light path has been colloquially referred to as periscoping, sort of in honour of the clever sights that submarine captains use, use indeed, still today. Uh, but if you think of Das Boot and those kind of TV shows, right, you're, you have a ship on the surface of the ocean. The light coming from that is running parallel to the surface of the sea. It hits into the periscope sticking out of the top of the submarine. It's bent down by 90 degrees through a prism. It's bent down across again by another 90 degrees back out into the captain's eye as he's looking through the eyepiece. And we call that a periscope. So the concept of bending a light path we call periscoping. Not really a very well-defined term. If you're looking for like a definition of what it means to have a periscope lens, you won't really find anything that isn't hand-waving. So the simplest way to periscope a phone camera's light path is to throw a traditional three-sided prism into the path. So you pop your lens on the surface of the camera bump like you always did, and then straight behind the lens, you put a three-sided prism to bend the light by 90 degrees. Now, if you have one of the Android phones that has a sort of a camera strip across the top of the phone, where the entire top of the phone is thicker, rather than a camera bump like you have on the iPhones, then it actually makes the most sense to bend the light to run along the top of the phone through that thicker camera strip. And then you mount the sensor perpendicular to the lens. So the lens is 
parallel with the screen in the back of the phone, but the sensor is now sitting perpendicular to that inside that camera strip some distance back. And so you can have a nice long focal length. If you don't have a camera strip, you may need to make the entire phone thicker and then you could also periscope bend the light so it runs down the length of the phone, sort of a bit like an old headphone jack. But either way, you end up with this cylindrical void through your entire, you know, through a chunk of your phone. And then you end up with a sensor that's not next to all the other sensors, which are parallel to their lenses. But you now end up with a sensor that's sitting perpendicular. And if you look at the engineering of a phone, it's basically a giant big pancake. Everything is flat things stacked on top of each other with the screw, you know, the back plate of the phone being the bottom of the pancake and the screen being the top of the pancake and everything else is these horizontal slices in between the two. And now you have this void, which is annoying and difficult to work with engineering wise, and you have this component that's sitting perpendicular to everything else. It's slicing through every slice of the pancake, right? It's, it's mucking things up everywhere. It's engineering-wise a very difficult thing to deal with. But we have had Android phones for quite a few years now with these sort of, you know, five-time zooms, that sort of a ballpark. And they're using this kind of a periscoping arrangement where you do indeed have these big voids through the phone and a single 90-degree turn. And the rumour has been pretty strong for pretty much the entirety of this calendar year that this autumn's new iPhones, the Pro models would have 5 or 6x optical zoom, which obviously means some sort of periscoping lens, some sort of a bent light path. And the assumption in the rumour mill was it would basically be the approach that some a small number of high-end Android phones have been successfully using, which is this traditional prism bent up by 90 degrees, and then you just have, you just tolerate having a big void. And I wasn't sure by the rumour mill whether it would be only the very, very biggest of the two pro cameras that would have the, um, that would have the, 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 the periscoping lens or whether it would be uh, some of the other ones. But either way, the rumour was the iPhone 15 Pro and or Pro Max would have this periscoping lens. Well, Apple had their big event. We now know that Yes, indeed, five times optical zoom is coming to the iPhone range, only coming to the iPhone 15 Pro Max. So that means, you know, if you buy a big phone, you get to have a periscoping lens, but it's not actually the same as what the Android phones have. So, like I say, periscoping lens is a hand-waving term. It's not an engineering term. There's no formal definition of it. So if you take the definition as being any folded light path, then the iPhone 15 Pro Max has a periscoping lens. But if you take the definition to be a light path bent by 90 degrees, like a traditional periscope on a submarine, or half a traditional periscope on a submarine, really, then what Apple did is not a periscoping lens. Now, Apple, in their marketing material and in their keynote, don't use the term periscoping. What they describe is that they have created a tetraprism, so they're calling it their tetraprism system. And instead of just bending the light once and bending it at 90 degrees and forcing the sensor to, you know, forcing the void and forcing the sensor to be perpendicular to everything else, they have managed to collapse their light path even more 
and keep their sensor parallel to the front of the lens. So it can be on, so it can be sitting there at the bottom of the camera bump next to all the other camera sensors. And they've done that by zigzagging the light path. So they haven't given a detailed schematic because I'm guessing it's a giant big trade secret. Uh, but one of the slides in the keynote does show a sort of an exploded photograph of the system with some, you know, lines drawn on it. And what you see is it's sort of like a hybrid of a W and an M shape. The light goes down, up, down, up, down. It ends up a little, obviously somewhat down, right? All the lenses Apple have ever made or anyone else has ever made always go a little bit down into the side, but it goes down into this. Sorry, it always go a little bit down, right? Every lens, there's a distance between the front of the lens and the sensor. In this case, the distance between the front of the lens and the sensor isn't dramatically different to that on the wide angle lens or the 1X lens, the 0.5X and the 1X lenses. So it all sort of sits together, but it is shifted to the side. So by squiggling the light path, the sensor isn't in front of the lens or the lens isn't in front of the sensor, but they are parallel to each other. And you end up with this, you know, for this squiggle, this zigzag of a light path, which sounds like, oh my goodness, that must involve a lot of optical elements. And the more optical elements you have, the more loss of light you have, because no optics are perfect. But no. Using a single cleverly shaped prism, which is sort of a parallelogram shape, which has four sides, hence tetra, tetra prism, the entire zigzagging happens within one single optical element, which is, like I say, what Apple have called a tetra prism. And if you're wondering why tetra, well, tetra is from Greek for four, and if you're not sure of that, remember a monopod has one leg, a biped, like us humans, has two feet, a tripod has three legs, and a tetrapod, like a cat, walks on all fours, right? So tetra four. So a tetra prism is a prism where the light bounces around four times, and it has four surfaces. Very clever. So, Apple have managed to have their cake and eat it too. Their phones have a much simpler design. Their light path is more heavily folded. And because the entire, all of this folding is happening within one single optical element, the expectation, which appears to be borne out by work by photographers who've been playing around with the stuff pre-release, is that there's extremely little light lost. Now, A really good reason to use a single prism is because we're actually really good at manufacturing very optically clear prisms. So prism technology is something we have down pretty darn well. So adding just one single high quality prism into the lens system shouldn't degrade the image by very much. And what we gain is we now have an effective focal length of 120 millimeters, which is that's proper, you know, telephoto level. That's a proper zoom lens. Well, it's not a zoom lens because it doesn't change. It's a proper telephoto lens. So, yeah, I've ordered one. I don't have it yet because Apple's website crashed and my pre-order didn't go through until half an hour after they were supposed to open, but they didn't open here in Ireland anyway. I'm going to have to wait a few more weeks before I can test any of this theory. But if you're wondering what a tetraprism is, there you go. If you're wondering what a tele, what a periscoping lens is, I'm hoping I've managed to explain that. And once I get my new toy, I'm sure I'll be talking about it again. All right, so changing tech completely. <laughs> Evelyn Huffer Dublin, 
That is the title of the book. There is no dash, there is no colon, there is no punctuation of any kind. It is Evelyn Humphrey Dublin. That is all it says down the side of the book. Beautiful book, though. So, German photographer Evelyn Hoffer, she fled the Nazi regime and spent her life, she grew up in Mexico, she spent a lot of time living in New York, but she also travelled the world and she sort of considered herself to be a world citizen. And so she has photography from all over the place. And one of the all over the places she spent literally, I think it's the guts of six months, was in Dublin on this fair island of Ireland where I'm talking to you now. And that was in 1967. And I have, you know, her work has appeared before, but what was announced just after Ward came on the show to evangelize Edwin Hoffer was this new book was coming out featuring her her work in Dublin. I was really taken by just her story and all of her images, so I would have bought an Evelyn Hoffer book anyway, based on that conversation with Ward. But the fact that there was a book of her work about Dublin coming out, it was just too perfect to pass up the opportunity. So of course I pre-ordered it. Now the pre-order ended up, I kept on getting emails from Amazon saying, your pre-order has been delayed. Your pre-order has been delayed. Not because Amazon were slow, but because the publishers were slow to get the book out. Anyway, it finally, finally, finally came out this summer. So about three or four weeks ago it arrived and I have been enjoying it, digesting it since. Um, And I really wanted to share actually. So... The book is published by uh, Stiedl, who are a German press, and it honestly feels handcrafted. I don't think this can have been a big print run. Um, Like, the the previous photo book I bought was a recent compilation of the work of the American railway photographer Winston Link. And that's a traditional coffee table book, you know, a, a glossy hardback cover with glossy pages printed front and back with a mix of full-page images and paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of text usually opposite the images, right? It's a mixture of prose and photography all mixed together. This book is nothing like that. Like I say, it feels handmade. It The cover is like something like you would get if you had a PhD thesis bound or something, right? It's very high quality, but it really feels like it was individually made. I, I, like I said, I don't know what the print run is, but I don't think it's big. Very, very beautiful book to hold. And when you open the book, I was immediately surprised to find there was nigh on no words. Like, very, very close to no words. So the book starts with the usual, you know, ISBN number, all that usual preamble junk. Then you have a one title page, basically, you know, even Hoffer Dolan in big letters, you know, photography, featuring the photography of Lynn Hoffer and an essay by um, a German-Irish author who I was going to talk about later, uh, Hugo Hamilton. And you float the page where you might expect to find a prologue or an introduction or chapter one or anything to introduce you to the work you find a single Full page photograph with generous white margins and a really quite small title. Not a caption, just a title. The photographs are printed on just one side of the very thick, glossy and luxurious paper. And for the next, almost the entire thickness of the book, there are no chapters. 
there are no prose. It is just photograph on one side of the page, nothing opposite it, generous borders, small titles, photograph, 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 photograph. All the photographs, all together, not grouped into chapters, not grouped into topics. It's a mix and match of different, you know, some portraits, some streetscapes, some architectural detail. It's all together. It's both Dublin and Dubliners. Both feature, you know, both are the heroes of this book. And then the photography ends and you get an essay from, as I say, the German-Irish author uh, Hugo Hamilton. And the essay is 23 or 4 pages. It's really quite short. Then you get the usual copyright detail and then the book ends. Right, that is it. That is the entire book. And as I say, I actually really enjoyed reading uh, Hamilton's essay. All three and a half pages of it. It sets the scene really nicely. It's written in very beautiful English. It is a nice piece of prose. It's actually, it's, I like his writing. Hamilton basically sets the scene for the book. He tells you even half her story. He tells you the story of her trip to Dublin. He tells you a little bit of backstory about some of the photographs, which is actually some really fun backstory, particularly uh, about the poet Patrick Kavanagh, who I'm a big fan of, actually. Um, but it it's strange to have what feels like an introduction to the book at the very, very end of the book. But he continuously references photographs without, sorry, he continuously refers to photographs, but he never references them. There's no C page 24 or even a subtle little P24 bracket or whatever, or even a footnote, you know, a little small superscript one and then down below, you know, page whatever. Basically, the only way the essay makes sense is if you already internalized all the photographs in the book, which I guess is why it's at the end. But it would have made such a good introduction if it linked to the pictures. So I don't know. It's very strange. It's very unusual. Both pieces of, you know, the photography is obviously the star of this book, but the essay enriches the photography, I think, quite a bit. So I like both. It's a strange, strange structure, but it I guess it works, even if it is weird. Anyway, I... I thoroughly enjoy this book. It's it's a whopping fifty eight euro when you buy it directly from the publisher. Uh, so the link in the show notes at letstalk.ie is to Steedle's webpage, Steedle.te. And if you buy the book from there, you see a nice glossy picture of the book, and then you can just buy it from there. And then there's no middle people getting skimming off all the profits. The publisher, who's done so much work here, gets to keep all the money when you buy it that way. So definitely do that. Um, right. I think we shall draw a line under it there. Okay, so I want to say a big thank you to everyone who has ever and who continues to support the show. You will find show notes over at lessestalk.ie along with big blue buttons to support the show. The idea here is that we have a listener-supported show and the show should come approximately close to breaking even. There is monthly subscriptions now to Patreon and I do want to stress they are now monthly. So I used to do it per creation and officially I still am doing it per creation because of how Patreon doesn't allow existing users to backport to the new features they're offering new users, which I think is a great way to reward loyalty. Um, But anyway, there is now going to be one creation each month, which is going to be effectively a list of everything I've done this month. So each month, one creation. So whatever you pledge per creation, you are in fact pledging per month. So if you'd like to give me $5 a month for my work, then pledge $5 to get the idea. Um, By changing from per episode to monthly, 
used to be two episodes a month, now monthly, that halves the income. I'm happy to say that you guys absolutely rock, and we are now back up to over 75% of what we had before I made the change only a few months ago. So thank you very much to everyone who has gone and edited your pledges. You guys are amazing, and I really appreciate it. Like I said, the intention here is to break even. This is a listener-supported show, not intended to be a profit center. We're not quite breaking even anymore since we've made the change, but I'm sure it'll sort itself out soon enough. And of course, the PayPal button is there to help offset one-off costs like software upgrades, hardware upgrades, um, things like the boom arm, my microphone is on, the microphone itself, all those kind of things. They come from that kind of one-off listener support. Um, There is some suspicion that my boom arm may be slightly faulty, so I may need to be buying a new one of those soon. So uh, a few pushes on the PayPal button now mightn't be the worst time. Anyway, thank you very much for everyone who supports the show. Just spreading word to your friends is also supporting the show. So tweet about the... No, sorry, not tweet. X about the show. No, I don't even look when you're in that terrible place. Just share with your friends and whatever mechanism you share with your friends. Um, Anyway, I'm rattling on now, so I shall stop. I've been your host, Bart Bouchots. You can find me at Bart B dot ie and until next time happy computing